Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. This is episode 200 of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Dry Fly Distilling. This episode features Langdon Cook, who is a writer, instructor, and lecturer on wild foods and the outdoors. Langdon has been nominated for James Beard Award and a Pushcart Prize. He has been profiled in Bon Appetit, Wall Street Journal Magazine, Whole Living, and Salon.com. His writings appear in numerous magazines, newspapers, and online journals, including Terrain, Gray Sporting Journal, Eating Well, Outside, The Stranger, and Seattle Magazine. His on-screen credits include the PBS TV series Food Forward, the Travel Channel's Trip Flip, and the webcast The Perennial Plate. Upstream is an in-depth and timely look at salmon, one of the last wild foods on our tables. As the author travels to meet a variety of colorful people associated with this unique species, from Alaskan anglers to fish farm owners to four-star chefs, Langdon reports on its remarkable place at the intersection of nature, commerce, cuisine, and human history. For more information on Langdon, visit his website, langdoncook.com, L-A-N-G-D-O-N-C-O-O-K.com. This episode is brought to you by Dry Fly Distilling. Dry Fly Distilling embraces the farm-to-bottle approach and believes it is the consumer's right to know what they are drinking, where it came from, and how it was produced. With no shortcuts, Dry Fly produces spirits from grain to glass. They invest in every step of the process and have a passion for what they do because they believe the right way is the only way. Find their gins, vodkas, and whiskeys at your favorite purveyor of fine spirits. For more information on Dry Fly Distilling, Visit their website at dryfly 
D-I-S-T-I-L-L-I-N-G.com. Follow them on social media as well as Langdon Cook. And now, episode 200. All right, we have Langdon Cook with us, and I picked up his book, Upstream, just on a whim at the library. And after reading it, I thought he'd be a great podcast guest. And also, I don't know what the term is when you finish a book you really like. It's sort of um, like a depression or a hangover. Then I'm like, damn it, I finished this book, and I really enjoyed it. So I guess I'm going to have to pick up your other book. That's what we like to hear. Yeah. All right, so let's learn about yourself before we get into your writing career. Where did you grow up? Sure. I'm, I'm a New Englander. I, uh, I spent time in Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Vermont before moving out west. Um, I can't remember exactly when I first picked up a fly rod, but I remember distinctly going on my first fly fishing trip. I wasn't actually fishing. I was with a friend. Uh, and his dad was fishing. We went to Pennsylvania. Uh, I was probably 10. And uh, me and my friend spent most of the time, you know, crawling around in the stream, catching frogs, that sort of thing, while his dad was fishing. And, you know, I had this conception back then, which I love. Uh, and I, in a way, I kind of wish it was still like this. But I, I thought that basically fly fishing was all about the false cast. And you just false cast it all day, hoping to get the fish you know, to launch from its watery environment into the air to take the fly midair. I thought that's what it was all about for, for many years until I finally tried it myself. And then you started getting lines tangled and you're like, what did I get myself into? Yeah, the bird's nest. No, I, uh, I probably first picked up a fly, a fly rod um, in Wyoming. I worked on a ranch, uh, a guest ranch. I guess it was the summer after my sophomore year in college. I, I was probably 19. Um, and we would we would take the dudes, the guests, up into the hills on these trail rides. And I don't think I'd ever even ridden a horse you know, before, but they took pity on me, I guess, and, and gave me the job. And, and it was wonderful. I just wanted to be outside in, in the mountains. And, uh, and there was another uh, Wrangler, as we called ourselves there, who who was uh, you know old hand uh, at fly fishing, and he would take us up, um, you know, outside of um, we were along the Snake uh, in Jackson Hole, and of course the guests would all fish the Snake, but we weren't allowed to, so we had to go find these these small streams in the national forest, and we'd hop in his pickup and uh, and take these old logging roads, and I can remember. Uh, coming to a fork in the road and there was a sign that said you are now entering grizzly country and uh he said this is the spot and uh and to to this day that stream kind of remains at least in my mind's eye the template of the perfect trout stream uh and that is that is where i first uh you know caught my very unsophisticated cutthroat trout uh what you caught it on you know i think a humpy a yellow humpy, um, which was perfect. You know, something nice that classic was, pattern. Yeah, something that had a lot of float to it. And uh, I had my fair share of birds' nests, that's for sure, um, getting tangled up in the willows behind me. But it was just a, a beautiful, purling stream that came out of the mountains. 
and uh, and never saw any grizzlies, uh, but maybe that kept others away because I never saw another angler, as a matter of fact. And we would go up there evenings after you know our our last trail rides of the day, and uh, and it was just it was the perfect place to learn. And I was just I was immediately caught up in all the trappings of it. I, I just I loved you know the rods and the reels and the lines and the flies and going into town and just sort of looking over all the different flies and what I might try. And, you know, I had a few in my box. I probably had, you know, parachute atoms and some humpies and some elk hair caddis, you know, basic dry flies. Uh, no nymphing. You didn't need to. Um, these these were not very smart fish. Um, they were very willing, which was which was perfect for me. And some of them could actually get sizable despite, uh, despite the, you know, this was a small stream, but um, we had a buddy with us who was spin casting it. And he would always catch the biggest fish, but he would catch 19, 20 inches. And we would take him back to the ranch cook, who was this Cajun uh, from New Orleans. I don't know how he ended up in Jackson Hole, but uh, he would make us these wonderful trout breakfasts with our catch. See, uh, catching so a big cutthroat like that on spin gears, to me, is like non-alcoholic beer. It's out yeah. there, but eh, it doesn't do it for me. I know we kept trying to bring him over to our side, but uh, but he was happy and uh, and yeah, that's where that's where it began for me. Uh, and um, yeah, over the next few years, I kind of learned a little more, and uh, and then you know, next thing you know, you're buying gear and you know, driving all over creation looking for new streams, and uh, and that's that. You're you know, <laughs> you're you're deep into it. Absolutely. So that was three quarters across the country. What got you all the way out to the West Coast? That's right. So I still had to go finish up college in Vermont. Uh, and then as soon as I graduated, I think the next day I made tracks for the West Coast. I, I had been steadily making my my way west during summers, uh, you know, summer jobs. And, uh, and so when I was finally done with my schooling, I just knew I wanted to be um, you know, west of uh, of the hundredth meridian, uh, and so hopped in my car uh, with a friend, um, drove as far as we could until we broke down, which happened to be in Taos, New Mexico, and uh, got jobs at the ski mountain the next day. And if that if the timing of this seems odd, I graduated from college in Vermont uh, at the very beginning of February because I started mid year and I finished mid year. Uh, and I actually skied down our little local mountain to get my diploma, and then the next day was off uh, heading for the west. And so we got jobs at Taos on the mountain and spent the rest of the ski season there and then continued our push and ended up in California that spring where I got actually my first newspaper job. Right. Did you study literature or writing in college? Did you, I was did you plan an, on being a writer? Well, I was an English major and, and uh, with a focus on creative writing, and I think my senior thesis was a collection of stories. Um, so really, fiction was my my first love, um, but uh, I kind of approached it in the old school way of, of you know becoming a cub reporter and getting that newspaper experience, which I did both in San Francisco and Berkeley, um, and I had done some newspaper work in college as well. Um, but, uh, started just, you know, writing kind of local beat stories 
you know. Anything uh, really strange? The, I read you know, today that some lady called 911 because her pet raccoon was stoned and was going crazy. And I'm just yes. thinking the person writing that must have been like, I was not expecting this when I woke up today. Yeah, I had to do the police blotter for a while. And that, <laughs> talk about, you know, good material to put away for the novel later. I think uh, that's where Carl Hyacin gets it all from. Totally. And in fact, you know, I, I did um, work on a couple of novels and thankfully they've they've stayed in the proverbial desk drawer. Um, but uh, it would be a number of years later when I would realize that you could really you could open up the novelist's you know, tool bag and use all those tools to, to write nonfiction. Um, but, but that would be many years later, um, really a, a whole new life later because I had to do a lot of things in between before I got to that point. Were there uh, any literary influences past or present? Any favorite books you've read multiple times? On the fishing side of things, I, I've always loved the angling writing of Tom McGuane and, and Jim Harrison and, and, and people like that. I mean, McGuane is such a great stylist. I just love reading his sentences. Uh, he has a way of really waking you up and and uh, just turning a phrase that you know is odd and beautiful at the same time uh, and he's conveys. Got, he's got quite the vocabulary yeah. too. I'll put down a book and have to look up the word or ask my wife if she's in the same room. Yeah, he does, um, and he just you know there's a little bit of that sort of impish kind of wit there, um, a little bit of the, uh, I don't know, the uh, sort of a, a 60s kind of, you know, way of, uh, of, of maybe tweaking the establishment a bit. Certainly, I, you know, I love those guys. I really like the writing of uh, Bill Barrick. Have you ever read him? Not familiar. So uh, he has a book about horse racing, actually, called Laughing in the Hills. Uh, it's, it's just – and it's, it's nonfiction, and he is also a wonderful stylist. He writes about fly fishing quite a bit too. Uh, and, these, and these pieces end up in some of his collected nonfiction works, and you can find them out there. He, he wrote for The New Yorker for many years, but a wonderful stylist, and, uh, and, and his stuff on fishing is really great. You know, I, I think a few of his personal essays I've I've just taken out and, you know, completely diagrammed them to see just how he pulled off the magic, um, which I've done with some other writers. I highly recommend uh, diagramming, uh, you know, an essay or, or a short story to figure out how the writer put it together, because as as you take it apart and put it back together, you really you really figure out kind of the nuts and the bolts of the craft. Uh, and I have a of his pieces that I've completely marked up uh, with all sorts of notations and arrows and, you know, flashback here and flash forward there and, you know, which character is suddenly introduced and new concepts. And it's a great way to kind of t to figure out the craft. And when you were doing the beat writing, were you also writing for non-work, coming home and jotting stuff down, writing stories? Yeah, so I didn't. I didn't really finish my trajectory um, after. So I lived in the Bay Area for a couple of years, you know, where I got kind of my my first newspaper experience, and then I moved up to Seattle uh, to go to the University of Washington's writing program. Uh, as I'd mentioned, I'd, I'd sort of been working on a couple of novels, and I really wanted to write fiction, uh, and so that's what I concentrated on for a couple of years. But you know, the internet happened. 
while I was here. And so I just, you know, got caught up in that. And the next thing you know, I was doing some editorial work over at Microsoft. And that led to a job at the fledgling Amazon.com, which uh, most people hadn't heard of at that just, point. Just a bookstore. In fact, yeah. our neighbors, they just they moved uh, last summer. When they got married, their first landlord to help make extra money in Seattle was Jeff Bezos. They rented a, a one bedroom from him. Come on. That's how that's he was making side money at the time. Amazing. Well, <laughs> I guess I first met him in the spring of 97, uh, and that's when I signed on over there as as an editor. My first job there was, and an, I don't know how old you are, and if you remember um, some of those early days with the Amazon website, but you know, back in the beginning, there would just be one book on the homepage. And so, you know, the editorial group would get together every day and decide what book that was going to be. And it was my job to do the sort of web production work to put that book on the front page, on the homepage. And I was and we, all writing code back in the day for HTML. Yeah. I mean, I, I just knew some basic HTML. And then we had to, we, we were Unix based. Really? So. Uh, I had to learn a little bit of Unix. <laughs> and so that was, you know, I was, I was the one that was putting that book up on the homepage every day as my first job with Amazon. Uh, but then, of course, as everyone knows, the company quickly grew very large. And the next thing you know, there was music and then DVDs and so on. But uh, I ended up spending several years working there. And then in, I guess, the spring of 2004, my wife, Martha Solano, who is a poet, uh, and she teaches at Bellevue College uh, here in the Seattle area, just across the lake in Bellevue. She received a writing residency, uh, which we just couldn't pass up. I had to quit my job. She took a sabbatical from her work, and uh, and we parachuted into the wilderness of southwestern Oregon in the Rogue River Canyon. And we were caretakers of a cabin, uh, a homestead, uh, that has had been grandfathered into the wild and scenic river corridor of the Rogue. So we were basically in a roadless area, uh, two hours from the nearest town, and taking care of this homestead with nothing to do but, you know, fish the Rogue and write about it. And uh, we had a three-year-old at that point, so we brought our boy Riley into the woods with us. And as things happen, uh, we ended up leaving uh, just under a year later, left the woods with a new kid, our daughter Ruby. So, so went was, in with. There was other things to do besides write and yeah, fish. Exactly, went in with one, came out with two, uh, which sometimes happens in the woods. That was the point when I started writing nonfiction. Um, and at first, I was just really writing about what we were doing out there in the woods. We had a huge garden. Uh, there was an orchard on the property. We were fishing for salmon and steelhead in the Rogue. We were dealing with the bears every day. There were cougars around. Uh, it was just an incredible place to be. And uh, and so I just started writing about it. And, uh, and that would really lead to my first book, Fat of the Land, uh, which is a collection of personal essays about wild foods and foraging. We were doing a lot of foraging on the property. We we're hunting mushrooms, and as I mentioned, we we're fishing for salmon and steelhead, and there were all sorts of wild greens and, and huckleberries and things like that. And I'd always done that sort of stuff um, because I've 
been a long time hiker and backpacker. And so I was familiar with the world of foraging, but I'd never really written about it before. And I quickly realized that, you know, these wild foods are characters in their own right. Uh, and the people who harvest them are really interesting. And so I just had all this material to write about. I realized that I could kind of use the same bag of tricks that a novelist uses in writing fiction and just do it with the with with all the stuff that was happening to us off the grid uh, at the homestead. Um, and so that that's really where it started for me with the book writing. It's sort of where you found your voice. Exactly. Uh, that is where I found my voice. And, you know, it took time um, to hone that. And I feel like it's still kind of shifting. Um, you know, the, the first book is, is very personal. Um, I would say there's probably a little more humor in it. Um, you know, I would move into more sort of journalistic realms after that. Uh, but still with this kind of first person approach, uh, nothing is as told to. I mean, I'm out there with the characters that I'm portraying, experiencing what they're experiencing. I wouldn't even know how to really describe my voice. I'm not, what would you say? Your voice? I'd have to think about that one, but it, it just clicked with me. I read your book extremely fast, and it was as if I was there following along, riding shotgun and, and just witnessing everything. You know, um, I, I try to... I try to weave together a lot of strands that interest me. So uh, the natural world, uh, food, um, wildlife, environmental politics, outdoor adventure, all these different threads I try to weave together. But I try to do it in a way that's entertaining without getting too much on my soapbox. Uh, I do have a point of view, and I try and get that across in my books, and I'm very – you know, interested in conservation issues. There's been a lot of studies on this, and you just can't win people over by preaching to them. But if you tell them a good story, you might get them to linger for a little while longer. And if they linger, well, maybe they'll start to maybe see things the way you see them. So, you know, I've always sort of seen it as, um, you know, for dog owners, uh, who have to give their dogs, you know, some medicine, uh, you know, the old dog pill wrapped in hamburger trick, right? That's kind of, that's kind of how I see my writing a little bit. I, I try and, uh, entertain with, the, with the hamburger piece. Um, even if sometimes there is that bitter pill that needs to be all swapped. Right. And all those points you just mentioned are all things that I'm interested in, would seek out in reading or, like a podcast or a radio, like an NPR story. So I was drawn to it and I, I didn't really, I don't really think there's any bad pill in there for me at least. Cause I agree with everything that you write. Otherwise I probably, I, I would still would invite someone on. That I didn't agree with, but everything in that book clicked with me. And I liked how you jump back you different location to location from a person you were traveling with from TU to Cal trout. And then you basically just went up and down the coast. It was an adventure for me. Well, that's that's great to hear. And, you know, maybe we're birds of a feather. For a lot of people, some of these issues, they're hard to hear. You know, they want to they wanna do things as they've always been done. Um, we get handed down these mythologies that we live by. 
and we do things because, well, that's the way our parents did it, and that's the way their parents did it, and, you know, why shouldn't I be able to continue this behavior, you know? Um, I think one of the subtexts of all my books is that we have to change our relationship to the natural world. Uh, if, if we want to hand over to the next generation some of these things that you and I both love, whether they're wild rivers and wild trout, the mountains, uh, open spaces, you know, clean air, clean water. I mean, you know, these are, these are values that do not have price tags attached to them. And in order to have them for the future, we're going to have to change our relationship to nature. I, I think that's kind of the bottom line. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Absolutely. So upstream, and I'm just, I go to the library, it's the 600 section, science novels and stuff, and I stay away from stuff that I don't get, like the cosmos, and I don't want to read cell biology, and I just see upstream, you have uh, water to the table, salmon. I'm like, well, I'm fascinated by salmon. I'm going to pick this one up. Um, how did it go from me picking up a book at the local library and you getting the idea to write it? Where did this all come from? Right. Well, so I've been writing about wild foods for the last 10 years. Uh, and after Fat of the Land, which was, you know, very – personal collection of essays about wild foods and foraging, I, I turned my sights on the mushroom culture here in the Pacific Northwest, which is just fascinating to me. Um, and in fact, it's it's the largest all-cash business in North America uh, that's legal. Right. <laughs> and so I started following mushroom, you know, the guys who do it for a living, the pros. Blindfold you? You know, you hear those stories. Uh, it's the recreational mushroom hunters that are the most secretive. The guys who are doing it for a living, they have so many patches that it just doesn't matter. You know, and the other thing that I learned was that most of the time their patches are nowhere near the patches that the recreational hunters go to. You know, the recreational hunters, they want to go to a beautiful place. They want to see a nice view. They want to walk on a nice trail. They don't want it to be, they don't want the topography to be too rough, you know, et cetera. The, the, profe the professionals are going to gnarly places. They're going to these dog hair forests that, you know, have been, they're mostly timberlands where logging companies are working and the terrain is rough. And we're talking second, third, fourth growth forest, you know, that's really almost industrial forest. It is industrial forest, but those forests are where the mushrooms really grow. So there are famous picking grounds where the, the professionals and the recreationals sometimes, you know, come into conflict. And I could think of like maybe central Oregon where matsutake is harvested or on some of the um, – on the coasts uh you know the coastal beaches where both matsutake and porcini are harvested some of these places are known to both the pros and the recreational hunters but for the most part 
the pros are, are going to these really sort of out of the way forests where you would never see a recreational hunter. And I spent a few years traveling around with these guys, making camp in the woods with them, uh, and really following the pipeline from the picker to the buyer to the restaurant chef. And so, you know, and that was a great writing experience. I felt like that book just kind of wrote itself. I would I would come back after a few days of being in the woods with these incredible characters, and they really, I mean, they had very colorful lives uh, and uh, and just wonderful things to say. They were they were just they were great to be around. Um, and I would come back and sit down. I think I wrote most of that book at the dining room table. I would just sit down at the table and, you know, chapters just kind of, you know, unfurled for me. It was a wonderful writing experience. And so when that was done, I thought, okay, what am I going to follow that up with? And and it just seemed like Salmon was kind of the natural extension. I mean, really, when you think about it, wild salmon are the ultimate wild food in North America. Entire societies have been organized around the life cycle of the salmon. Human beings have relied on salmon in North America since first crossing over the Bering Strait maybe 15,000 years ago. There are sites along the Columbia River, there are fishing sites that represent the longest continual human habitation in North America. So for all these reasons, it just seemed like you know, if I was going to continue to write about wild foods, why not tackle kind of the, you know, the, the, the elephant in the corner, the biggie, uh, and that was wild salmon. And, of course, being a fly fisherman myself and an angler in general and a salmon lover and living right in the middle of salmon country, it just made sense. But it was daunting because I knew that, you know, unlike the mushroom world, which essentially is totally hidden from view, uh, and I was shining a spotlight on it, and for many people, this would be their first experience of really even realizing that the, this whole mushroom business was happening around them. But with salmon, it's a totally different story. Of course, everyone has a dog in this fight. Uh, you have all these different user groups who you would think would try to be on the same page because they all want to have salmon around for the future and yet they can't agree. So I'm talking about you know commercial fishermen, tribal fishermen, sport fishermen, um, conservationists, uh, all these different groups uh, who cherish salmon, and yet you know they really are often at loggerheads as well. So I knew that I was kind of wading into some tricky currents, um, but I guess I felt like you know I, I needed to. I needed to take the plunge because, um, because you know, salmon are up against the ropes right now. Are we going to have this resource for future generations? I mean, that's really sort of the question uh, behind the book. Uh, and so I went in search of good characters because that's ultimately how I tell my stories. It's through the other characters. Uh, and uh, and I ran into just some amazing people. And, for instance, there's you mentioned Trout Unlimited. So there's Renee Henry, who is the lead California scientist for Trout Unlimited. Uh, and then there's Riley Starks, the reef netter from Lummi Island uh, in Washington State, uh, and so many others. Uh, and, um, and I really kind of let them tell their own stories. I mean, it's a book about salmon culture. And so 
I try and get into some of the history there, uh, especially with the tribal fishing. But um, but I also try to maybe shine a light on on where this culture is headed in the future and what the obstacle what the obstacles are to restoring salmon runs. Do you think that so salmon evolved? And you mentioned in the book that all the catastrophic geological things that were happening for millions of years. When the humans are gone, do you think that our damage could be considered, uh, I guess it, be, it, it is a man-made factor, like the volcanoes erupting and different things that salmon have had to evolve around, and that when we're gone, they may be able to just come back completely, or they, they might be able to evolve around human destruction, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, I mean, salmon are incredibly resilient. That's the thing. If we give them a little bit of room, I mean, look at the Elwha, for instance, uh, and and I'll just give a little bit of background on that for your listeners who are not familiar. So the Elwha dam remo- removal in Washington State is the biggest dam removal in the U.S. to date. Um, and there were two dams on the Elwha that were built, uh, it you know, essentially ill legally because um, the state charter of Washington um, basically dictated that you couldn't erect a dam unless, you know, there was fish fish passage. And so the way they got around it, and we're talking 100 years ago, I think the dams were uh, erected in the early 1900s. And so the way they got around that was by building what they called a mitigation hatchery. And that kind of began the process of you know, doing something harmful to a river or to a salmon run and just building a hatchery as the replacement. So, oh, we're going to irrigate this river to death. Okay, we'll build a hatchery. Or we're going to, you know, we're going to build a big open pit mine over here. Okay, we'll build a hatchery. We're going to put up a bunch of dams. We'll build a hatchery. Um, So this process of building mitigation hatcheries um, to cover the damage of whatever we were doing to the environment started and really continued for the next century, right? Well, finally, I mean, removing the Elwha dams was really a sort of holy grail uh, for fish conservationists. And when it finally happened, I mean, immediately the fish responded. And they're moving up through the system now. And it's an incredible science experiment that's happening right before our eyes. Uh, and, And it's really exciting for people who you know, love these fish and want to sort of, you know, continue this process of restoring them to other watersheds. Um, but I should mention, you know, the, the whole idea of restoration is, is a concept that kind of comes up in the book, especially with uh, one particular character, that of Rene Henry, the, the fisheries ecologist uh, from Trout Unlimited. And he uses a different term. He uses the term reconciliation. Because as he says, you know, when we think about restoration, we think of it almost as like, you know, an old rusted classic, you know, 65 Mustang that's waiting under a tarp for a new owner with deep pockets who can, you know, do the restoration. But that's not you know, that's not going to happen. The, the, the environment is not a rusted out 65 Mustang. Um, the best that we can hope for is more like this reconciliation that he talks about. And I love that word because it kind of evokes long simmering family feuds, you know. And like, for instance, the lower Sacramento River, 
where he's doing a lot of his work. Like, we're never going to restore that. That's in the breadbasket of the country, you know. The, the lower sack is completely channelized and diked, uh, and, you know, higher in the watershed, you have all the dams. And I mean, it's just, it's not going to be restored the way we think of the term restoration. But we can reconcile our sort of man-made, you know, uses of um, of that watershed um, with kind of renewed natural productivity. So we can, and I write about this in the book um, in in a chapter called the floodplain fatties, uh, in which uh, one of uh, the projects that Renee Henry and another colleague of his, Jacob Katz from Caltrout, the Nigiri project that they're working on. I'm hoping uh, to have him on. As well, oh, we well, emailing. I, because for reading your book, I was like, I've got to have him on to talk about the Nigiri Project. Yeah, the Nigiri Project's been getting a lot of ink, and well, it should, um, because it, it really, as Jacob would say, what he's doing is he's jump-starting sort of the natural engines of productivity in, you know, a very altered landscape. I mean, you know, the Sacramento um, has, has been, we've completely changed it, but um, it can still nurture salmon if we if we give it a chance so in the case of the nigiri project what they're doing is they're working with the rice farmers um and uh and basically they're they're breaching some of the dikes which you know that's a word that farmers never want to hear right breach um but they're allowing young salmon out into the rice paddies to forage and they're finding that that these salmon are growing at much faster rates than the fish you know, the young fish that are stuck back in the deep, swift, cold, channelized river, right? Uh, and so when it's finally time to go out to the ocean, they're stronger, they're ready to face predators, they just, they do better, they come back in larger numbers. So that's the sort of project where, you know, you're not going to get rid of all the rice farming that's going on in the lower Sacramento, but if you can work with those farmers, um, to come up with some compromises that there's a word right compromise that it just seems like is that even in the dictionary any longer you know i mean especially on capitol hill where you live right does mm-hmm. anybody know what the word compromise means that doesn't happen i know and so you know these are the sort of issues that i get into in the book it's tricky i mean we're living right now in just these times where everyone is in their silos, right? But you meet a guy like Rene Henry and he's really, he's reaching out. He's trying to work with ranchers and farmers um, and, you know, come to some sort of mutual understanding, um, some sort of compromise so that, you know, we can still have our highly managed landscape in California where it's probably more, you know, managed than anywhere on earth, right? But also, so have salmon. I mean, California had epic salmon runs. Um, Describing you know, just the animals that used to live in the Central Valley there, similar to the Serengeti. Exactly. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it was just an incredible place. Um, that's just, you know, one of the, the sort of many elements that I that I get into in the book. Um, I You know, I looked for good stories that I could tell. There's, there's way too many. And so... I, I just had to – ultimately, it kind of came down 
to the stories and the characters behind them. Um, there were so many more stories that I could tell. But as it is, you know, there is a lot of jumping around. We moved from Alaska to California to Idaho and points in between. So, you know, it covers a vast geographical area because salmon country is huge, frankly, and a lot of issues as well. You know, the Snake River dams, uh, overfishing on the Skeena system, you know, the list goes on. So I tried to touch on a number of the different issues, you know, logging on the Oregon coast. Um, so there are a lot of different issues that are kind of paired with the people who are working on those issues. And with all of this driving, did you drive everywhere? You know, well, um, so I, I flew to Alaska, spent time in Cordova, uh, which is where the, the famous Copper River salmon originate. And that's uh, always big. There's a restaurant group here at Clyde's, and that's the big thing every year is the Copper River salmon have come I've in. I've been to Clyde's. That's, uh, that's right there in uh, – uh, near uh, Georgetown, right? Yep, that's where uh, the song Afternoon Delight was written. Oh, come on. Yeah, John Denver. Yeah, yeah. you got me there. You got me. Um, I, I flew up to Cordova a number of times and hung out with Gil Netters up there. Uh, and now that's a place that I'm just continuing to go back to. Just beautiful country, great fishing. And, uh, and I, I love going and visiting the Gil Netters up there. You know, all the way down to California. I did do an epic drive. Uh, Renee Henry joined me for this, um, the fisheries ecologist from California. We, we drove from Astoria, Oregon, all the way to Redfish Lake uh, in, in Idaho, in central Idaho, following the 900-mile migration of the Chinook and Sockeye that make, you know, that longest salmon migration in the lower 48. Uh, that's in the chapter about Lonesome Larry, mm -hmm. uh, who was, you know, the sole sockeye salmon to make it back to Redfish Lake in 1992. Uh, and for his diligence was, you know, clubbed over the head and relieved of all his milt so that a, um, a huge sort of broodstock hatchery effort could um, could try and keep that run on life support. Did you see the Goonies house when you were in Astoria? The Goonies? No, I, I didn't see the Goonies Goonies house. I did go uh, to this old this old bow picker. Uh, it was called the Bow Picker Restaurant. It's a uh, it was built from an old you know uh, bow picker um, I'm fishing. Not familiar with a bow picker is. So a lot of the gill netters, they use what are called bow pickers, and that's you're picking your net from the front of the boat. That's why they're called bow pickers. Okay. And uh, and I think they were developed – I think that style of boat was first developed on the Columbia. And so you can go to this restaurant, um, which has been sort of reclaimed from an old bow picker. And and uh, and and get your you know fish and chips fix. But of course, when we were there, the fish of the day wasn't salmon; it was tuna, um, which I thought was very interesting. And part of that, you know, is climate change. With the warming Pacific, uh, the commercial fleet is finding that they can do pretty well with albacore tuna. That they're moving uh, farther north now. Exactly. That's exactly. So strange. I, we're gonna, I swear we're going to have tarpon in. DC in a couple of years when you the know, waters I, get warm enough. I just caught my first tarpon the other day. Nice. Uh, 
Yes. Uh, it was, uh, I don't know, we guesstimated it about 80 pounds and, uh, and, and brought it to the side of the boat, which I think is good enough, right? Absolutely. <laughs> we, we tried to, uh, to, you know, kind of get a, get a pick. It had other plans and eventually broke off, but uh, but we did bring it to the side of the boat. So I, I think that one counts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I haven't mentioned this before. I don't eat fish. You don't? At all. I eat uh, – I like oysters. But okay. after reading your book, I was telling my wife, I was like, so I think I might try some salmon now. And she's like, what you talking about, Willis? I said, the reef netting method of a spring run – king sounds like that's something i want to try the reef net fish are are so delicious and i mean a lot well riley starks one of the characters in the book um who is the marketing director for lummy island wild which is a cooperative of reef netters on lummy island in washington state uh, he will tell you that you know the tastiest fish in the world are the reef net fish because of the way they're caught and i spent a lot of time with the reef netters uh, up on Lummy, helping them, as they say, grab web, uh, which is hauling the net in. And uh, it, it's a little bit difficult to explain, but basically the, the net is suspended between two barges that are anchored out in Puget Sound, sort of in the migratory path of salmon that are heading for the Fraser River, just over the border in Canada. And they enter what's called the reef, and the reef is like a giant funnel. Uh, and, you know, traditionally, historically, um, Native American tribes would have would have constructed the reef out of beach grass and nettle cordage and that sort of thing. And it'd be, say, 200 feet long and maybe 200 feet wide at the mouth. And basically, it would just hang there in the water where the salmon are migrating. And as they migrate into the – as they move into the reef, they see the reef – as as essentially shoals and so they're you know keeping their distance but the reef is narrowing and it's bringing them up in the water column as well and so by the time they get to the barges they're sort of these schools of salmon are all bunched up and into a much more tightly confined space and at that point you can actually there's a spotter who's standing maybe 20 feet up um, in this in this spotting tower, and he can see the school, and he gives the signal um, to the reef netters with the net when to haul it up. And uh, and was so when the net... The guy, sorry to interrupt, the guy in the book, was he the older gentleman that was in the 70s that was the spotter? Well, right. So, I mean, that's, there are some reef dangerous. netters. There are old timers out there on Lummi Island who have been doing this for, you know, 60, 70 years. And uh, sometimes they'll just, you know, they'll come out for old time's sake, just to just to stand in the in the in the in the spotters, you know, tower and make the call. Um, and it was it was just an amazing experience to hang out with all these reef netters because they really believe in what they're doing. Now, the great thing about not only does does the does the reef netting method produce a, a great piece of fish. Because just to finish what I was explaining, um, when the fish are brought in, they kind of slide down uh, the net. Almost, It's almost like a, a sort of a trampoline. They come sort of bouncing and sliding down the net into waiting holding tanks that are on board the barges. So they're still alive. They're swimming around in the holding tanks, and they swim off the lactic acid buildup from the trauma of their catch. And then at that point, 
their guild by the by the reef netters and move to a bleed tank where they just bleed out as as Riley Stark says they just they they peacefully cross over <laughs> and uh, and then from there you know they're they're moved to ice totes and and rushed to market um it just sounds like the most ethical environmental it sounds like the way that fishing should be done it's the only way on the high seas to selectively fish if you're trolling or you're gill netting or you're purseining you know, you just you can't be selective, and I would see this time, you know, time after time. Uh, you know, a, a big catch would come in, and there'd be a few fish that didn't look like the others, right? Maybe there'd be, you know, several dozen sockeye salmon headed for the Fraser River, and then half a dozen bigger fish with big black spots on their back, you know. Well, the, and 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 then a big, you know, fleshy adipose fin. Well, these were wild Puget Sound Chinook, which are ESA listed. And they could just, you know, let the Chinook swim around in the in the uh, live tank, and then when it was time, you know, once the once they were healthy and strong again, um, just sort of, you know, cradle them over the side and off they go, you know, toward their spawning grounds. With the reef netting, that's really the only method where you can do that. A fish that's been caught in a gill net or in a purseine or on a hook and line, you just you really can't successfully resuscitate that fish it's the dead fish with the reef netting if they get an esa protected fish you know they can still they can revive it and off it goes but uh but yeah it it really it was an amazing thing to watch and they were true believers that's for sure i mean it's not the money believe me <laughs> it sounds like a hard work but it's, it's honest living exactly exactly and uh you know, I mean, these are the sort of hard choices that we're going to have to be making. Um, you know, on the Columbia, they're experimenting with some with some new methods that are more selective. You may have heard of the pound nets that the Wild Fish Conservancy is experimenting with on the Columbia, um, because at this point, you know, spring Chinook. Um, I mean, you know that that. That run is just really in trouble. And gill nets don't differentiate between the hatchery fish and the wild fish. Um, so we're going to have to start, you know, changing things up a little bit, um, experimenting with new possibilities. And, you know, that's why talking with someone like with, like Renee Henry, who has such a big role in the book, um, is just so much fun for me because here's a guy, you know, who's a fisheries ecologist, who's seen, you know, all these declines in the fish runs firsthand, and yet is still optimistic because he really believes that there are solutions out there. And it just, it's a matter of people joining together to protect this resource. You know, people realizing that, um, you know, where we live um, and how we live is is really important, and uh, and his optimism was just contagious, and uh, and so you know it it gives me hope that there are people like Renee Henry and Riley Starks out there who are trying to make you know who are trying to do things differently, uh, and showing others that it can be done, uh, and and that's just what's going to have to happen. And it's a shame that. If someone like a Kardashian gets all this money for doing something stupid and vapid and irrelevant, 
Yet there are people busting their humps to basically save an entire species for everybody. And there's such a dichotomy in this world that you know, those guys are making a harder living. And they don't really get the... They get no glory. You know, they, they barely make a living, you know, and, uh, but they're committed. Uh, and, and that's what we need. We need people who are committed. And, uh, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll let the Kardashians of the world go along their merry way, right? Yes. Hopefully off a cliff or something. (laughs) Put them in front of a long line net, some dollar bills on the hooks. There you go. Um, what did you eat on the road? There's a lot of frozen gas station burritos when you're doing all this research. Well, uh, not always, uh, and I'm not. I'm just not a big fan of. And I guess of, you, as a forager, you're. You'd be surprised. Food. You, you can find you can find good food just about anywhere. You know, when I was in Cordova, for instance, uh, hanging out with the gill netters up there. Oh my God, we ate so well. They took me out mushroom hunting. I discovered a new type of berry called the nagoon berry. Have you ever heard of a nagoon berry? No, but the first time I heard of a Marion berry, I thought it was a joke because that was the old mayor in DC. Yeah. <laughs> the crack smoker. Yeah. Yes, and my dad brought home Marion berry jam and we're like, are you, you kidding us? Yeah. What's in this? You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so so what the, was the name n- of that berry again? It, the nagoon berry is actually it would be a relative of the Marion berry. It's it's a it's in the Rubus genus, which is all the blackberries and raspberries. And it and it's kind of it's a ground hugger. You find it pretty close to the ground. It looks a little bit like a blackberry, um, although I guess it's a little sort of more ruby red colored. And it just despite the fact that it's in these sort of tundra like conditions up in Alaska, um, it has this kind of tropical flavor to it it's just wonderful uh and uh, i also picked uh i think high bush cranberries with some of the gill netters and we went out mushroom picking we were picking hedgehogs and yellowfoot uh and we made incredible feasts and of course you know they would have their home pack that they would bust out of the freezer so we were eating halibut and salmon and uh and dungeness crab spot shrimp and then mixing in, you know, the fresh mushrooms that we were finding right out the back door and the berries. And I think um, one of the gill netters made a wonderful um, cranberry barbecue sauce. I mean, it was just incredible. And then I, I had uh, lunch at this woman's house. Her husband was a gill netter. And she made meatballs from um, bear and moose that were just unbelievable with some cranberry ketchup. I mean, Sounds good. You know, yeah, and so you know, Cordova is a town of what two thousand people. Um, there's no road, famously there, and you know the bumper stickers you see see around town say no road because every now and then there's a you know a push to maybe connect them to the Alaskan road system, but uh, I think there are a lot of people there who would prefer just to, to keep their isolated you know <laughs> stance, and uh, and so you either fly in or take a boat and. Uh, but man, you eat very well there. Uh, and where else? Um, trying to remember some of the meals that I had on the road. I definitely logged a lot of miles. You know, that trip following, you know, Lonesome Larry's journey 900 miles up the Columbia. So that, you know, we followed the Columbia to the Snake and then the Snake to the, to the Salmon River, uh, in Idaho. 
And then finally to, um, I guess to Redfish Lake Creek and Redfish Lake itself. Um, but, uh, we actually, I think we camped a few nights when we were in the Sawtooth Mountains there. And, uh, and I like my camp food. When, when I go camping, it's not, it's not freeze dried astronaut, you know, backpacker food. I mean, I, I like to whoop up a pretty good camp meal. Um, so, you know, no, I, I, I ate pretty well during the, the writing of this book. Uh, I will say that I found it to be a harder book to write than my previous books. There were just, there were a lot of stories to tell, a lot of locations, a lot of settings, um, a lot of characters, and I had to figure out a way to kind of, um, to work them all together in a, in a narrative way that made sense for the reader. Um, and so ultimately what I realized was that I had to step into the narrative a little more than, you know, I might have been comfortable with. Um, I had to kind of get into the story to a certain degree because I wanted it to ultimately unfold for the reader the way it had unfolded for me. Because what I realized as I was kind of reporting and writing this book was just how complex and complicated these issues are. And so I went from a place of kind of relative naivete um, to kind of learning just how difficult the whole, you know, the, the process of getting all these different user groups together to try and take a shared responsibility for this resource that they all love. You know, whether it's the tribal and commercial fishermen or the rec the recreational anglers and the guides, the chefs and restaurant owners, you know, environmentalists, conservationists, all these different people, they love salmon, but they have very different ideas about what to do and how, you know, where these fish will be in the future. Um, and so as I got deeper into it, you know, I felt that I'd sort of develop more of an understanding. And so I wanted to take the reader on that same kind of journey, starting at a place of maybe, you know, maybe the most basic understanding. That's why the book starts at Pike Place Market in Seattle with the arrival of the first Copper River salmon of the year. Because at the marketplace, that's where, you know, we have our kind of most basic connection to these fish you know some of us are anglers some of us you know maybe work with these fish in one way or another but for the average person it's just as a consumer it's as somebody who goes to the marketplace to buy a cut of fish and if you go to pike place market in mid-may when the first copper river salmon have arrived you will see all these tourists and locals who are gathered around these big yeah, yeah. You will see them gathered around these big displays of fish, you know, and it's just, you know, these silver sided fish that are stacked on beds of ice like treasure and their eyes are popping out of their heads because it's almost in our DNA. You know, we have been human beings in North America have been eating these fish and husbanding the runs uh, since they first got here, you know, and it's almost like it's in our DNA. And people's eyes are popping out of their heads and they just, you know, all these salmon. I mean, it's just, it's a great scene to see. 
And so that's why I start the book right there with our sort of both our most basic connection to these fish, which is just as consumers, you know, and then you start to get into the issues. Is this a wild fish? Is this a farmed fish? If it's a wild fish, you know, is it a is it a hatchery fish? You know, there are all these sort of different gradations. Um, and that's kind of how I lead the reader into it. So from from the marketplace, then we go to a restaurant uh, and then from there, um, you know, off spinning into the, this sort of salmon universe. Um, but I wanted to start at the most basic level. Do they still throw the fish at Pike? Oh, yeah. That's part of the attraction. Oh. You know, I, thought that was, I, I, thought, <laughs> I just find that disrespectful to the food. Well, PETA does, too. I know that they have um, – they raised some objections about the uh, the throwing of the fish, but I don't know. I guess they, they hit on a formula that works for the tourists, and people seem to love it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Throwing a fish around uh, doesn't seem very respectful. Yeah, you're not going to throw steaks around and other food. It's just – like I try to teach my daughter about respecting food. Also, She also asked, why do we have to eat everything from scratch? At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. I mean, we like her to know where her food comes from and to respect it and, you know, the idea of wasting food and how much work it took to get on the plate. Um, I think for her to see, because we don't eat fish in the house. My wife doesn't want to eat it because she thinks, I don't know why she doesn't cook it. She she can cook. As long as she doesn't cook with cilantro in the house, I'm fine. I can't stand the smell. But, <laughs> um, you know, we like to know where our, our daughter needs to know where the food comes from. And I don't keep my fish and there's no fish in the house, so... Uh, maybe I'll harvest some white perch this weekend when my father-in-law comes to town and he can teach her how to clean a fish. Well, you know, it's it's kind of similar in our household because my 13-year-old daughter is vegan. And so she is always trying to sort of teach us about uh, animal cruelty and all of that. Uh, and uh, and some of it's catching on, I have to say. And I I eat quite a few of the dishes that she prepares. We have a lot of tofu in our house as a result. And I happen to love tofu because I really like Sichuan Chinese cuisine and I nice do a lot of tofu. Yeah, I do a lot of I do a lot of Sichuan cooking and so I'll make my daughter um, like Yusheng eggplant for instance and she loves that and she's teaching me how to make things with tofu and I don't know. You know, it's uh, it, times are changing, right? Uh, I had in Philadelphia at the Reading Market, Reading Terminal, I had vegetarian tuna salad made with chickpeas from a can, and you would never know. And yeah. I go through like two cans of that a week now, of chickpeas I, with mayonnaise, pickles, capers, dill. I had chickpea stew for lunch, which my daughter had made. So we are loaded with uh, cans of chickpeas here at our place. Okay. Um, you know, with the vegan diet and, you know, <laughs> I would love it if, uh, if maybe my daughter just every now and then would be able to taste some of my smoked salmon. But I also understand she's committed and she does this because she loves animals. You know, that's why she's vegan. 
And uh, and I cannot fault that. I love animals too. I might be a little more compromised, um, but I respect her commitment, and I think that she is emblematic of a whole new generation coming up right now that is seeing things differently. And I have a lot of hope for this generation, and I and I think I hope that they will make some of the changes that we need to have, um, especially when it comes to the environment. And don't even get me started about Scott Pruitt and the EPA. I mean, (laughs) yeah, you know, those guys are gonna, mm, yeah, right down the street. These these are dark times that we live in, um, but uh, but you know, what's the expression that it's always darkest just before the dawn? So, you know, um, I do have hope for this this generation that's coming up and i mean the same thing i have a 17 year old son and they can uh, vote at the next election exactly well and he's an october birthday so he will be right on yeah uh and we need every vote that we can get but he loves to fish uh and i've you know i taught him he had a snoopy rod from the age of two and caught his first steelhead at the age of three on that snoopy rod i write i write about that um in a, in a in a piece that you can find it's it was published in in Gray's Sporting Journal years ago but it's not in any of my books but I read it recently in Seattle and it was uh, filmed and put on the Patagonia website um, so you can go check that out if you want but I it's one of my favorite pieces and I'd never read it before because frankly I didn't think I could get through it without crying. Um, and so I warned the audience ahead of time. I said, listen, I might be choking up here. Uh, don't feel embarrassed for me, you know, but I'm just giving you warning, but I got through it and, uh, and, but it's all about taking my son steelhead fishing when we lived off the grid in the Rogue River Canyon all all those years ago. Is he going to go back since they're too young? They they don't remember it. You know, he barely remembers it. He was three and turned four while we were there. Um, and he has some faint memories of it. He has since been back. We try to get back every couple of years. We actually went back last year for Labor Day weekend. And I don't know if you remember, but the West was on fire mm-hmm. around that time of year last year. And uh, there was a huge fire out on the Oregon coast. Um, that just blew all this smoke into the into the canyon, and uh, we went in for one night, and I think we got up at like we we pulled in at maybe eight o'clock at night, and by four in the morning, I'm waking up my wife and saying we need to get out of here, like could barely breathe, and uh, just hightailed it out with the kids, and so that was that but we will get back there it's a it's an amazing place and uh it's where i learned to steelhead fish i you know you you were asking me earlier about mentors uh and the people who own that homestead and who are part of this writing residency um the boyden family um bradley boyden uh really became a good friend of mine and would become my steelhead mentor and i write about him uh in the in the chapter on the kispiox um fishing for steelhead up on the kispiox which is a a, uh, tributary of the skeena and uh he was the one who first showed me how to sort of snake 
a little um, red ant pattern along the kind of basalt, um, you know, bedrock of, of the Rogue River Canyon there and get these, they call them half pounders. They're juvenile steelhead that, uh, that return to the river after being, they, get, they head out to sea and spend, you know, like less than a year in the salt. And then they return to the river, which is unusual, um, as juveniles. Um, and then they go back out to sea again to finish their maturation in the salt. But while they're in the river as sort of juvenile steelhead, and they're trout-sized, they are really aggressive to the fly and super fun. And, you know, they're sort of like 14 to 18 inches, something like that, And uh, but, but really aggressive to the fly. And uh, I took my son down there with his Scooby-Doo rod, and he was three years old, and you know, he saw me throwing the fly and demanded that he use a fly as well. And I tried to explain that, you know, with the with the when you're fishing with a lure, you can't really use a fly because you need a heavier line, right? So he got kind of upset at that idea. So what I ended up doing was tying on a little, you know, ten inch piece of monofilament to his rooster tail, and then to that I tied on an egg sucking leech and that just made him so excited and so we're fishing for half pounders there on the rogue and uh and mixed in with the half pounders of course are the are the adult fish that are returning to the river to spawn and he hooked into one of those um and they're not super big on the rogue but you know you know five six pounds and on a scooby-doo rod let me tell you (laughs) he had some fun with that and at his age he's already checked off some impressive waters he's fished he has and he's fished with me in the salt um and you know caught he's caught silvers and pinks in the salt and he's fished some of the warm water uh areas as well he's fished down in florida um with a fly and and caught um i guess ladyfish and sea trout and even snook um so yeah he's 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 he's, more accomplished than i am (laughs) <laughs> well, we we were just uh, down that way for spring break uh, last week, and I mentioned to you that I that I hooked into my first tarpon, and uh, boy, that was just crazy. Have you ever fished for tarpon? I have fished for them. I've only hooked one. I mean, this thing jumped out of the water, and I mean, we were not expecting to you know hook a tarpon in this spot, and uh, I mean. It scared me. You know? I, mean, I could feel my knees buckle a little bit. That's a big fish, you know. Uh, and then Riley actually tied into a shark, which was pretty exciting. Um, that thing just went. Uh, but uh, but yeah, we've managed to do a little bit of fishing here and there. Um, I'm hoping that uh, you know, as I as I get a little older and uh, try and you know start focusing on having some little more fun, you know, that I will, uh, that I'll be able to go to some of those. I've never bone fished for instance. That's fun. I haven't landed one of those either. Yeah. So I'm saying your son is more accomplished than I am. (laughs) I've never landed a snook. They were fun. They weren't, you know, they weren't super big. Um, they were kind of in the like 18 to 22 inch category and on the fly, it was awesome. You know, um, but, uh, yeah, we've had, we've had some fun father son fishing trips. I took him to the big hole. Um, and so he's experienced, 
you know, fishing for large browns with very small trico patterns, which uh, when he was like 15 years old. So I've tried to expose him to some good action. Nice. Uh, let's see. How, would you want to come on again and talk about urban fishing another time? So I know. Free time? I know. We've kind of – where's the time gone? You know, it's like we've been at it for an hour and 15 minutes and we never even got into the urban fishery. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean we could we could do like a part two. Yeah. That sounds fun to me. Okay. I um, hope um, – I hope – you know, there was some good usable stuff here for you. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully everyone's you know encouraged to go buy your book on your old employer's site or their local bookstore. What about you? You've got some lectures coming up soon. If people are listening to this in a timely fashion, where can people go and, and hear you talk? You know, that's, let me think about this for a second. Um, I have been doing a lot of lectures recently. Um, in terms of upcoming stuff, I am, I'm doing, you know, people, you know what, people can go to my website and I have some links there that will take you to, you know, appearances that I'm making. I've got some public library appearances coming up um, around the Seattle area, um, the sort of greater Seattle area, Washington. Um, I do a lot of speaking engagements, you know, up and down sort of the Washington, Oregon coast, down into California sometimes. Um, I do different lectures. I'll I'll talk about my books, but I also do a lot of wild food lectures. I call them my my, uh, patch to plate lectures where, you know, maybe I'll give a talk on fall wild mushrooms or, you know, summer berries or something like that. And I show the different species in their habitats and then in finished dishes that I've created with them. Um, and people seem to like those because it just it gives you some, you know, ideas about how to take some of these foods, which, you know, can sometimes be intimidating. You know, you get your hands on some morels, for instance. Well, you want to do justice to them, you know. You ever go morel hunting out where you are? I've never even gone after fungi. Uh, if I could find porcinis, I would be very happy. I make a lot of porcini risotto. I love porcini, and I do all sorts of things with porcini. Um, and uh, and there's so much fun fun to find. Uh, and of course, morels. You know, morel hunters all over the country. I think they grow in just about every state. Um, so you know, I'll do these kind of patch to plate slideshows uh, and talk about you know different types of wild foods. People people seem to enjoy those. You're um, writing the fungi book, and you're bringing, I guess, fungus home all the time. We were, oh, was it like Forrest Gump with the shrimp? Huge quantities. And so finally for Father's Day a couple of years ago, my wife gave me what she calls the forager's fridge because she was so tired of like coming home and seeing the entire fridge in the kitchen just filled with bags of my wild foods that I'd been harvesting. You know, so for Father's Day, I get the forager's fit fridge, which I can keep in the basement, you know, and uh, and keep all my stuff in there. I mean, in season, you know, if it's mushroom season, yeah, there's going to be a lot of mushrooms in the fridge. If it's berry season, same thing. And then I always have lots of fish in the freezer. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've got a vacuum sealer. And uh, so right now, there's a bunch of salmon from Alaska. There's a little bit of halibut. There's probably some gooey duck clam in there. Definitely a lot of packs of uh, of mushrooms, which they freeze quite well. You have to saute them first, and then you vacuum seal them. Uh, 
but uh, and huckleberries, blackberries, I don't know, stinging nettle pesto. <laughs> I've got all kinds of stuff in. In a, I have a dedicated stand-up freezer That's for fantastic. all this stuff. Yeah, uh, and then I dehydrate a lot of foods as well. So we've got mason jars filled with stuff. Yeah, would, it's really it's fun. I would love to take all those berries and make a, a syrup and infuse a vodka with them. So I do that kind of stuff. Oh, um, I make a um, – well, I've done it with blackberries. Uh, what else have I done it with? Um, do you know what elderflower is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like St. Germain, if you've ever had St. Yep. Germain. So like I, I make – I'll harvest a lot of elderflower in the spring. In fact, that's coming up. Usually I think I do that in May. Um, and, uh, and then I'll make you know cordials uh, and I'll can them and they last – you know, good long time. And they're great with like a splash of champagne or vodka or whatever. Uh, and I'll do that also, um, with elderberry. Uh, have you ever had elderberry syrup? My wife probably has somehow put that in a cocktail. She's the cocktail maker in the house. Yeah. If you're a mixologist, these wild foods are incredible. Uh, I want to get the, the drunken botanist book. Yeah. That's supposed to be awesome. Um, Somebody was telling me about the latest craze in infusing. I'm trying to remember. A friend of mine who is married to a Russian woman, um, and you know the Russians, all the Eastern Europeans are That is my wife. My wife is from Azarasha. Oh, well, there you go. So so my in-laws are coming. I got beets, potatoes, onions, leeks, vodka, and bread. They are crazy about wild mushrooms. That's Uh, all my father does in Colorado yeah. Is like their his freezer's like yours. It's pickled mushrooms and rainbow trout. I bet he's going after porcini, right? After the monsoons. It's hard to understand him. He's so Russian. Oh know. really? Well, one of the things uh, that these friends of mine make is they take vodka and they infuse it with yellowfoot chanterelles, um, and it's really really good. And all the chanterelles and their cousins, you know, yellowfoot. Um, black trumpets, they're all kind of members of the chanterelle family. They have a kind of a fruitiness, um, which is sort of interesting for wild mushrooms. Um, some like chefs will say that they're reminiscent of stone fruits like apricots. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a little bit of sweetness there. And I got to say, the vodka infused with yellowfoot chanterelle is just amazing. Um, the other thing that your wife probably would be into is there's a type of mushroom called lactarius. Um, which is a gilled mushroom, and when you when you bruise it or you cut it, it kind of extrudes a sort of a milky, like latexy like substance. Name lactation. Yeah, so that's why the the genus is called Lactarius, and the Russians love those. Um, but you know, here in this country, most recreational mushroom har- harvesters don't really pay any attention to them, um, but they're really good. And again, my Russian friends will um, they'll pack them in salt with um lemon zest and that's how they preserve them and they are amazing interesting i might have to take yeah. my father-in-law out this weekend besides getting white perch to look for some fungi so wait is your wife is she like does she have any experience mushroom hunting or like does no. she have like family lore about mushroom hunting because in russia it's just huge yeah i mean well they didn't have anything to eat back in the day so they had to go look for it um, I've been told that like there's a train that goes out of Moscow, and you know on weekends it just fills up with people with their baskets, and it heads out into the woods, and people just get off at whatever 
stop and go to their patches, you know, and then at the end of the day, everybody gets back on the train when it's going the other way and they've got full baskets and they're heading back to the city, you know, <laughs> it sounds I'll ask great. Them about that. Yeah. Yeah. Now my no. mother-in-law makes ridiculous latkes because potatoes and onions were one of the few things you could have back in the day. Yeah. You could and find so, food. So my wife is Polish Italian. Um, and so we have some interesting food ways in our house as well. So, so with the Polish side, definitely like she's, she's making, you know, similar type things. Um, pierogies, she's making pierogies and haluski, you know what that is. And yeah. yeah, And, uh, and then, and then there's the Italian side of the family. And of course the porcini is very important for that. Um, and, uh, you know, we do a lot of lot of different pastas, and and I mean, mu- mushrooms are just they're filled with umami. And here's the other thing, um, you know, ten years ago it would have seemed a little bit um, capricious to kind of marry seafood with wild mushrooms, but in fact they just they pair together really well because they're both loaded with umami, you know, and uh, and so like even shellfish with wild mushrooms so i do i do like for instance i'll do a spring chinook with a with morels and a and a um and like a red wine reduction or something like that or yeah it's super good that's right that's how we'll get you back on the salmon diet and then um diver scallops pan seared with some morels and a little nettle sauce oh that's good action um so yeah i mean it's surprising but but fish and mushrooms go really well together. And, you know, for vegetarians, like you were saying, your daughter, right? Um, I mean, does she eat mushrooms? She used to eat porcini mushroom risotto with peas when she was in preschool for lunch. Yeah. Now she's getting a little more picky. Okay. How old is she? She'll be seven in about five weeks. Yeah, she and Ruby sound like they're really cut from the same cloth. Yeah, she could live off. I mean, she loves ba- her breakfast for her is bagels with capers on it. Uh-huh. Everything bagel specifically, right? But she, she'll sit there with, and just eat capers out of the jar. Like, <laughs> all right, you're, as long as you're eating something that's not garbage. Yeah, yeah, no, that's adventurous. Huh. Very cool. No, well, so- we should de- we should definitely talk urban fishing at some yeah. point because I would love to tell you about. Um, you know, fishing for silvers and pinks right here in Seattle city limits, which is, I like uh, yesterday. I was teaching a uh, shellfish class out on Hood Canal, and I brought some of my smoked salmon um, for that class. And uh, I love telling people that it's my super fun site salmon because, in fact, you know, if we're fishing the lower Duwamish River, which is Seattle's working river, it is a super fun site. But of course. My the dad fish. wrote all that stuff. He yeah. used to work for EPA back in the day. Oh, right. Exactly. Yeah. So you're probably familiar with that. And, I mean, that's where Boeing is. And, you know, who knows what kind of nasty chemicals are just sitting on the bottom of the Duwamish. But um, And they've been cleaning it up for years. But the thing is, is the salmon, you know, they're in the Superfund area for the time that it takes for the tide to change. You know, yeah, that's they're- like the white perch here. They're in... And then they're gone. So all the fish in the river now, they're not contaminated with all the D.C. nasty. Right. And they're spawning up, you know, in the crystal clean waters upstream, you know. And uh, and so, you know, they pass through 
uh, all the contaminants, but they're not really living it. Not not the way a ground fish would. I mean, I would never eat a flounder out of there, you know. But uh, but yeah, no, it's kind of fun to be able to fish. You know, with the trash compactors and the Boeing jets that are taking off, you know, the, the, the test planes. I can remember when they were developing the new model. You know, I can't remember what it was called, but uh, we'd see this huge thing come right over us. You know, we'd be out there on our in our uh, pontoon boats, you know. And I mean, it's it the, the pink salmon. And here I am. I'm now I'm kind of getting into it, but uh, we maybe should save this for another time. But but uh, but, you know. They, 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 I mean, they really like a fly, you know, and, uh, and it can just be, I mean, they get kind of, sometimes they'll be schooled up and they just get kind of crazy. They just start slashing at flies left and right, you know, and we'll all be out there in our pontoons, a whole bunch of us, you know, and just everybody's hooking into fish and it's just, it's so much fun. That does sound fun. And my wife said those buildings are big enough that clouds will form inside of them. The Boeing buildings. Really? I'm not, I'm not surprised where they're making the airplanes. Those. Yeah. Those, well, they're huge too. Yeah, they are. They are massive. She's had to go tour them a couple times for her, um, incognito work stuff. She does. Oh, right. DOD. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, She she actually texted. She's on her way back from Auckland right now. Just got on the plane. She probably has to keep pretty close tabs. What was, it was a Boeing, uh, engine that exploded on that Southwest flight. You oh, yeah, that, that was horrific. Yeah, that's really scary. Uh, I don't want to know what happened to that poor passenger who got sucked out. Yeah. That's not a good way to go. Um, but, uh, well, yeah, you know, we should, do you want to just continue the conversation another time? Absolutely. In the meantime, where can we find you and your wife online? So you can find me at langdoncook.com. And for somebody that does all the cooking. There you go. Yeah. Uh, although I didn't come to it right away. Uh, I had to learn. And it really wasn't until I met the woman who would become my wife that I started getting into gear uh, on the cooking front. And I actually – I tell a funny little story about that in my book, Fat of the Land, because the first time I cooked for her, you know, I was a, I was a grad student. I was probably in my early 20s, and I made her what I thought – was a real delicacy, which was my home cooked version of an egg McMuffin. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing to tell that story, but uh, I think you know I had probably a six pack of beer in the fridge, you know, a, a package of Hormel Canadian ham, you know, and and maybe a, a couple of eggs and 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 you know some stale English muffins and some American cheese, you know, otherwise bare fridge. You know, and, house. And, and totally. And yeah. uh, and so that, you know, and I think it might have been, you know, the first morning that she woke up in my apartment and, oh, honey, let me make you a, a real treat. <laughs> so I had to I had to get my she declined, by the way. Um, you know, she held the package of Canadian bacon with her thumb and forefinger like holding up a stool sample or something (laughs) and just said, thanks, thanks, but I'm going to pass. I'm going to go out to eat. Yeah. Yeah. So I realized at that point that, okay, maybe I need to learn how to cook. (laughs) I couldn't even chop an onion back then. Um, So it's been a process. 
But I like to remind people in my talks and lectures that if I can do this, anyone can. So, I mean, I'm, I'm an enthusiastic home cook, but by no means am I professionally trained. I've never worked in a restaurant. Um, and so, you know, this is just what I've learned to do at home. But it's been a fun journey. And then, of course, the foraging part of it has been in tandem. And so I've kind of, you know, just been learning along the way both how to forage and how to cook. And it's been a great sort of tandem process. Fantastic. Hey, it's been fun talking to you. Thanks for taking the time out. Hopefully everyone goes out and purchases your book or gets them from their local library. Purchasing is better. Hey, I'm all for that. Uh, You know, my mother-in-law actually got the book out from the library, and she's still hearing about it to this day. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, and maybe, maybe, we'll be maybe doing we should, this again. Maybe Give we sh- should. Maybe yeah. we should cut that last part. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I don't wanna, no, you don't have to cut it. But I did. I mean, can you imagine if your mother-in-law got your book from the library instead of buying it? It's mean, terrible. <laughs> so I still give my wife a lot of crap about that. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, do you want to talk urban fishing? Like just, I don't know, whenever you want to. Just let yeah. me know. Okay. Maybe during the dog days of summer when things slow down. Yeah, I mean, for us, it, yeah, that's, that's sort of when it gets going is, uh, is in the summer. You know, July, August, September, that's when I'm either fishing the beaches around Seattle or – as once the fish start piling into the rivers, you know, late August, then we'll go and we'll fish the estuaries in the lower sections of the Duwamish. And that's super fun. You should come out. Working on it. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Hey, great talking to you. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com Places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. 
want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.